0: I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And what does it mean to be a heterodox thinker? We hear that word a lot these days, heterodox. Lord knows I've said it a few times on this podcast. And really what I think it comes down to is being exceedingly content with a whole bunch of people disliking you. Not all at once, of course, just a continuing rotation. Sometimes it'll be people to the right of you, then people to the left, then folks who were your strongest allies two days ago will suddenly hate your guts next Thursday. And this is not to say that people who are consistently in one camp aren't principled. Far from it. It's more that all of that going against the graining can be kind of draining. Our guest this week shares what drives her to keep speaking about so many unspeakable things. Megan Daum is the creator and host of The Unspeakable podcast. She is also author of six books, most recently, The Problem With Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars, a New York Times notable book for 2019. Her collection of original essays, The Unspeakable, and other subjects of discussion won the 2015 Penn Center USA Award for Creative Nonfiction. A Los Angeles Times opinion columnist from 2005 to 2016, she has written for numerous magazines, including The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and Vogue. Megan is the recipient of a 2015 Guggenheim Fellowship and a 2016 National Endowment for the Arts grant and is on the adjunct faculty of the Writing Division at Columbia University's School of the Arts. Megan, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Well, it is great to have you. So to start off, I'd like to quote a bit from your book, The Problem With Everything, which I mentioned in the intro, quote, if there's anything I've learned in 25 years, it's that the more honest you are about what you think, the more you have to sit in solitude with your own thoughts, end quote. And just a bit later, you say, quote, you can't fight tribalism with a tribe, end quote. And if I had to mark an overarching theme of this conversation, I guess it would be this, is it possible to be an independent thinker without exiling oneself to eternal solitude? And can we belong to a wider community and still escape, to paraphrase a chapter from your book, the pull of the man with the floppy silver hair and the woman with the jangling silver bracelets? So <laughs> st-
1: Beware of silver. That, beware. I think that's yeah. like the uh, red flag.
0: Indeed. So to start us off, and so that reference doesn't come across as too much of an inside joke, could you share with us your experience as a young writer in the 90s when you first kind of encountered all that silver-accented adoration?
1: (laughs) Well, I love silver. I will say I only wear silver jewelry, and I love people with silver hair. So this is not to knock silver people. Okay, so just for some context, the man with the floppy silver hair and the woman with silver jewelry were people I talked about in a section of the book where I was recalling being at a writers conference in the early 90s maybe mid 90s it was probably it was probably 1994 and i was 24 at that time so everyone can figure out how old i am and i had written a piece of nonfiction and given a reading from it and it was like this kind of all over the place essay that was kind of complicated even though it was convoluted because i was only 24 and i didn't really know what i was doing but in the brief excerpt that I read for this public reading, it kind of came across as a sort of feminist, very much on the right side of things, good liberal lefty NPR tote bag, having sort of exactly the right kinds of things that you're supposed to say about how women have it hard and all the usual stuff. And it wasn't really, the essay wasn't quite saying that, but it came across that way. And because it did, a lot of people were like praising me and saying it was really important. And I was saying really important things and, keep going with it. And I liked being praised, but even at the time I knew it was a lie because I knew I was saying something more complicated, but for various reasons, the more complicated message wasn't getting across. And so I knew I could have kind of coasted on saying the simple thing for a long time. I probably could have made a whole career of it, but it felt false and it just didn't feel that interesting. And so the man with the the man with the floppy silver hair and the woman with the silver, and I think probably also turquoise, there was probably some turquoise going on with the jewelry were coming up to me and telling me how great this was and you know it would have been really easy to appease this sort of reader for a long time, and frankly, I kind of did. I am fifty one okay I was born in nineteen seventy for me, that meant being a liberal being on the left meant that you were having complicated conversations and that you were not afraid to talk about things. That was a tenet of liberalism. It was the conservatives who didn't like to talk about things. They were the purity police. So I really went along that way, just assuming that and kind of playing that game until maybe 2013, 2014 or so when I started to notice that the roles were kind of reversed and it was the left that was becoming really rigid in terms of what you were allowed to talk about and what you were kind of supposed to think. And that's when things started shifting. And to get back to your opening question, when I started to feel more alone with my thoughts and the writing process and the thinking process became more about really having to stand on my own feet and just speak for myself rather than kind of speaking for a group of us, my generation or my particular Social ilk, or I wasn't speaking about my social milieu as much as I had in the past. It was just me.
0: Yeah. And I want to get to that loneliness and what kind of eventually drew you to what you coined as free speech YouTube in just a moment, because I think it's relevant. But I'm wondering if the pull of saying the right thing, right? That anti liberalism, which I think you just kind of identify. I'm uh, 12 years younger than you, I was 1982. But the left that I remember. Kind of falling in love with when I was 18, 19 years old was kind of a direct opposite of what the moral majority right was in the late 90s and early 2000s, right? The left was cool. It was punk. It was Sarah Silverman saying naughty words and people being offensive in a way where the inside joke of everyone who was listening to the joke was that the offensiveness was a commentary on the thing that was being said that was offensive, Right. right? It wasn't necessarily being offensive just to say terrible things about quote-unquote marginalized groups or punching down or punching up. It was the act of being offensive in and of itself was a reaction to the don't do this, don't do that moral right that was kind of ascendant in the Newt Gingrich era, right? Yeah. But I wonder though if, and again, maybe this is a premature question, but I'm just going to go for it, Megan. Is the pull of being an independent thinker, quote-unquote, of being heterodox, of questioning the narrative, right? Can that contain the same kind of pull that the other side can do, where you're always saying the right things, looking for approval. I do wonder, and we'll get into this a little bit later, and I'm not saying anyone in present company is guilty of this, but I do wonder if the desire to always be questioning things can lead to almost a kind of never agreeing with things even when they are true and potentially like a conspiratorial mindset. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, of course. Well, that's kind of what a contrarian is. Right. I don't like it when people call me a contrarian, which I realize is a Contrarian thing to say in and of itself. (laughs) I really ultimately, what it is for me now, and what it has been for me always, certainly since the beginning of my career, is that I'm just allergic to bullshit. I was never a particularly political writer, certainly. I'm still not. I'm not a policy wonk. I'm not somebody who's going to hold forth endlessly on certain issues of the day. I have certain ideas, but I'm not really well-versed enough in any particular area to be like an effective pundit. How I did get into this kind of political sphere is first of all, everything became politicized, but the skin that I have in the game is that I just can't stand to live in a culture and operate in a discourse where there is just constant nonsense and BS and hyperbole and performative sort of outrage being Spewed all the time and it getting passed off as public intellectualism, for instance. That drives me crazy. So, insofar as looking at all of this stuff, the heterodox crowd, for instance, people like you, and me, and people who are on the left ostensibly, but looking at the ways in which the left is not being very liberal, criticizing this kind of stuff, insofar as there is a kind of click that has emerged among these people. I think that there's some of that. I do try to resist it. I mean, I don't think I get invited to all of their parties. So (laughs) I didn't get into this because I wanted to be in a club of people saying this kind of thing. But at the same time, it is nice to know that you're not alone. So it's hard. I mean, isn't this like the essential question? Like, how do you remain true to yourself without just being a complete jackass who doesn't get along with anybody? (sighs) I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Time marches on, right? Like history progresses. And we look back at past eras of injustices, whether it comes to issues of feminism, which you talk about in the problem with everything, and you've written uh, quite extensively about, or other issues involving race, class, et cetera. I feel like we're probably the same here. And I think most well-meaning people are. You don't want to look back in time and think like, oh my God, I was on the wrong side of that. In my desire to be not to use the C word contrarian here, Mm -hmm. but in my desire to like try and hold fast to the truth, I might've actually been accidentally ignoring real injustices. Right. And that's something that I am trying to like guard against. Sometimes I'll see things on the progressive left. Right. And I'll be like, am I just the old man now? Right. Right? Like, am I just out of touch?
1: Yeah. I think you have to be self-scrutinizing the way I approach this. And I did this in the problem with everything. Some people noticed it and appreciated it and others did not. The book is nothing if not a self-interrogation. Every page, every paragraph, just about every sentence of that book is playing out the dynamic that you just articulated. Like, am I missing something here? At first glance, I'm noticing this phenomenon going on. It's making me roll my eyes. What is it about it that I don't like? Is it just tonal? Is it somehow the style of this message? Is this purely aesthetic? Am I being really shallow? Or is there something at root here that is misguided, that is hyperbolic, that is being expressed not very effectively? And the thing is, the truth is almost always somewhere in the middle. Yeah, part of me is being a curmudgeon. And part of me is right. And that is really, you've got to balance those two sides of it. And the problem is, if you do that, once you try to entertain opposing thoughts on an intellectual level, that is the place of the most integrity. That's the most honest place to be. But it doesn't get you very many clicks on social media. It doesn't get you the highest ratings. That's the problem. The reward system for being utterly certain of your position is such that it doesn't pay very well to express self-doubt.
0: Yeah. I think in addition to being allergic to BS, so to speak, one theme that seems to be common in your work and kind of was reasserted again and again through various anecdotes from your life was I think you just have a problem with explaining phenomena through a singular lens. And I think one of the examples that you use that kind of jumped out to me was when you ran for student body president in the eighth grade <laughs> against the the ever so popular Steve. Mm. And one day Steve's friends kind of approached you at your locker as sort of like a gang.
1: Yeah. A bunch of goons. Yeah. A bunch of
0: goons. Yeah. It seemed like out of a after school special, you know, like
1: as like, like a mafia.
0: And at the time they asked you not to run because quote, Steve wanted it really badly or whatever reason they <laughs>
1: the but, same way Hillary Clinton wanted it really badly, right? Exactly. right? You just let him have it. Yes, you really wanted to be president. Yeah,
0: happy birthday to this future president, yeah. (laughs) But I think one thing that really struck me, and I do feel like this is a marker, right, between different divisions of the left. You resented the idea that it had to have been, and there was no word for this back then, but it had to have been that you as a 14-year-old had internalized your misogyny rather than, as you said, just had internalized stupidity. It definitely seems like that is a through line of what I think a lot of folks, and I won't say in our club or in our community, but people who are kind of like-minded have an issue with because it flattens you as a human being, Megan, when other people say that they know why you did certain things.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with all of this is if you're going to see everything through the lens of identity, it ultimately ends up being sexist. It ends up being racist. It's infantilizing if you deny people their complications, you deny them their humanity. That's another thing I talk about in the book. So yeah, it's funny. I hadn't thought about the running for student council president in the eighth grade since I wrote it in the book. But yeah, you know, the thing is, I wasn't really, um, I wasn't really at root as maybe I thought I was. It's funny because now, you know, all these years later, there was a period a couple of years ago where I really had it in my head like I wanted to start some kind of movement, some kind of like nuance movement, the new rationalist or something. And I like was really fired up about it. And I was talking to different people and how could this be and what would this look like? And would it be like a traveling ideas festival? And I would be the leader of this movement. And then things started to come up like Persuasion, Yasha Monk's group and different kind of people started doing this very thing. And I kind of found myself thinking like, oh, okay, well, I don't have to do that then. I actually, I'm just gonna write and I'm gonna keep doing my thing and I'm gonna do my podcast. I'm gonna kind of stick to what I do well. And there was a moment where I was thinking like, is this internalized sexism that I'm okay kind of stepping back and letting the Yasha monks of the world lead the way? And is this why there's a gender wage gap and are women just kind of programmed to let men take the reins? I don't know. I mean, there's probably a tiny, tiny bit of that. But I'm not somebody who like ever wanted to be a wife and mother. It's not like I'm kind of personally programmed that way. But yeah, I think that just sort of temperamentally, I'm not a natural leader. I don't like being the boss of people. So back in the eighth grade, it was probably that I was experiencing some aspect of myself that really it had more to do with just not wanting to be in charge, not needing so badly to be in charge of something. It wasn't because I thought I was lesser because I was a girl.
0: I have a similar hesitancy around those kinds of labels and groupings for different reasons, right? Like, I grew up religious. I was Christian until my early 20s. And even when I was religious, whenever someone would kind of ascribe beliefs to me because they had encountered some other Christian somewhere along the way, and they'd be like, oh, you're a Christian, so you must believe this thing that my friend from Idaho believes – Mm -hmm. I'd be like, "Uh, no, not at all. And the more and more I kind of started getting grouped in with people and people would make assumptions about things that I must believe because I have the same label, I became more and more uncomfortable with the idea of a label in general. But speaking about that idea of groups and the intellectual dark web and, and free speech YouTube, that kind of brings us to why I reached out to you in the first place. And it was an essay that I read on Medium, which you then I think expanded quite a bit in the book it was called Nuance, A Love Story. Right. And it was how you kind of came across free speech YouTube as your own marriage was disintegrating. Right. And one of the things that kind of very quickly drew me to that corner of the web, besides the fact that my own relationship was disintegrating at the time, oh. which is another parallel we can kind of talk on if we get to that point, was that they quote, to use your words, wasted less time with the to be sure disclaimers that now clogged just about any expression of the not perfectly woke <laughs> opinion, end quote. And I'd to to hear you speak on that a little bit for our listeners. And I just I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Can you speak on the distinction between the to-be-sures and the people that you came to admire on what you <laughs> called free speech YouTube?
1: Yeah. Well, the to-be-sure paragraph or the to-be-sure disclaimer, it's something that we talk about a lot in opinion writing. I was an opinion columnist at the Los Angeles Times for a little over 10 years. I started in 2005 And so, you know, there's a thing that you do when you're writing an opinion piece where there's a kind of a formula generally, especially in a newspaper column where you start off with an anecdote or something, you kind of state what the subject is, and then you give some examples of something and then you say what your opinion is like, well, you know, I think such and such. And then you do this thing where you go, to be sure, there are all kinds of legitimate arguments that would go the other way. You can agree with me in this way, this way, this way. You might say this. But ultimately, I still feel that I have a point because blah, blah, blah. All right. And that's just a way of inoculating yourself against critique. It's a very natural sort of rhetorical move. And it used to be that the to be short paragraph was like one paragraph. And it came about a third halfway down the piece. And now the to be sure paragraph from what I see takes up like 3 quarters of the piece. <laughs> anything you read is like to be sureing all the way down and it's always of course now it has to be to be sure people from marginalized groups are affected much 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 worse by whatever it is. COVID, climate change, crime increase, absolutely anything. So that's, you know, one of many to be sure. So that kind of rhetorical move was mandatory in, all, in journalism everywhere. I was just seeing it constantly. So when I sort of discovered these intellectual, these scholars, academics, scientists, et cetera, talking with one another on YouTube, people like Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter and people like a lot of the new atheists and people on Sam Harris's podcast, that kind of thing. There was a refreshing lack of that kind of throat clearing. They weren't doing the constant catechisms about like, well, I realize that as a white person, I'm speaking from a place of privilege. They didn't really bother with that. I mean, there was a little bit of it, but generally not. So yeah, so I think that's what you're referring to. It was refreshing not to have everything just be totally larded with the uh, to be sure disclaimer.
0: And actually, what you just said reminded me of another passage in the book was how you were talking about the concept of punching up actually ends up giving the people that you're punching against more power than they might have. It can. Yeah. And the to be sure sounds like it does the same thing, right? Because in some ways, if you keep saying to be sure or as a white person, I recognize (laughs) that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is a different manifestation of the potential idea of demarcating power through dividing who can be punched up against and who can't, right?
1: Yeah. Well, when I really talk about the kind of paradox of the punching up principle, there is this whole, especially around 2014, 2015, a lot of the online discussion in the social justice sphere had to do with women's issues. This was before race came along and kind of eclipsed that particular fixation. But So much of it was about how we live, every woman suffers under the thumb of this patriarchy and any given man is going to be mansplaining or manspreading or just being generally toxic in a masculine way. And, you know, women are unsafe when they walk down the street. And so out of that came this vernacular where it became cool to like be really mean and nasty and petty to men online, just kind of insult them every which way or, you know, insult their masculinity or just complain about them in really petty ways that if it were done the other way around, it would be completely misogynistic and sexist and uncool. Like if men were talking about women online, the way women talk about men, and I don't mean online and like subreddit groups, I mean, in spaces like Twitter and mainstream media and being kind of praised, and this is cute. And this is punching up to power and how fun the ironic misandry, right? I drink male tears, that kind of thing. I found that so maddening, because, you know, it purported to be an expression of power for women. But what it was really doing Was saying, well, men automatically have more power than we do. So that's why we are punching up to them by being so mean to them (laughs) and saying these things. And really, effectively, when you do that, you're handing them a power that they don't necessarily have. You're putting them on a pedestal so that you can knock them down. And the fact is that in the aggregate, men are doing far worse than women, their rates of education are lower. In a lot of income stratas, they're not making as much money. We're talking about when we complain about male power, we're really talking about a tiny, tiny slice of the population. You're talking about the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and you know, a handful of guys in Silicon Valley. For the most part, women are doing a lot better than men, along many, many metrics. So I found that whole kind of vernacular really frustrating. And so, yeah, so that's the point I made there about punching up. Don't just assume that any given man is like, has the power on the level of a celebrity or a public figure or a rich person, the kind of person that if you were a stand-up comic, it would be okay to be mean to. Just because it's a man doesn't mean it's somebody you can just assume has it over you.
0: Yeah, and it importantly kind of obliterates distinctions, right? And you talk about how these distinctions exist within majority female spheres and the way that women can... Compete against one another or be mean to one another or just be fully human beings who can express an array of emotions and good and evil and can contain multitudes, right? Yes. And I think similarly, the point that you just made, it's like, yes, the majority of Fortune 500 CEOs are men, but they don't get into club meetings online with the coal miners in (laughs) Appalachia, right? Like they're not all buddy, buddy, right? In fact, a lot of men are screwing over other men, whether it's trying to disrupt unions and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I worry that when we talk about people in these groups like this, It's like you talk a bit about red pill communities and and how the good concepts of some of the the male red pill community, right? Like not having equal custody rights over children in divorce.
1: Oh, yeah. There's some really interesting men's rights issues that need to be talked about more. Yeah.
0: Yes. But in that kind of interesting and actual valid conversation that happens in those spheres, what you oftentimes find is someone will take an anecdote, right? Like they had a bad experience growing up with their first few girlfriends or something, or they were picked on a lot by women or girls when they were in high school or college, maybe because they weren't traditionally good looking or they were a bit nerdy or something. Yeah. And then they take those anecdotes and then they ascribe them to women as a group. Right. And I think societally, we can recognize how... Not to mince words here, stupid that is. And yet it's encouraged when it comes out of other communities right. where you'll have a legitimately toxic interaction with a man who might be in power or might be on the street and say something untoward. And then, as you've said, that kind of just gets projected on social media as this one anecdote that I had is representative of the yes. entire group.
1: Yes. Everything is politicized, everything is seen through the prism of being a huge phenomenon. I mean, again, of this comes back to social media. And I hesitate to even say that because it's so banal, it's so obvious, but it really is that. I always say to people, especially younger women, you know, it used to be that. If you walk down the street and you had an unpleasant encounter with somebody, or if your boyfriend said something horrible to you, or just something happened that was unpleasant that had some kind of gender dynamic or some kind of identity dynamic to it, whatever it is. now it used to be that you would go home and complain about it with your roommate and move on or like call your mom and bitch about it. And then that was it. And now instead of that, people will go, it used to be on Tumblr and or now they go on Twitter or they express this on social media in a post. And then it gets completely elevated to this level of like, this is the state of women. This is what's happening to women. The world hates women or whatever it is. And it's like, well, no, this is just like a little thing that happened to you that before social media, it would have been a blip in your day and you would have moved on. But because this is the way we process our experiences now, you can collect the likes and the responses and the comments, and the whole thing just gets amplified and distorted and becomes so much more than what it is. And so we start to see the whole world as if every single little tiny thing is an enormous event. It's not that the world is so much worse. Actually, we've never been safer. There's never been less violence. Crime is down. I mean, I know it's up in the last year, but generally speaking, things are better by like a lot. The difference is that we are just hearing about every single bad thing that happens. (laughs) We just happen to know about it. And you can make the argument that, yeah, it's good to know about it. It's good to be aware. But if you're not able to separate perception from reality, you're gonna live in a really distorted kind of brain space. And that's what I think a lot of people are living in.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's a recurring theme on the show, regardless of the guest, whether it was Lenore Skenazy talking about how, because of the advent of social media and the 24-hour news cycle, parents think that their children are in constant danger of being kidnapped and murdered, or with Dr. Monica Gandhi and how the news of like a single case of a virus breaking through a vaccine causes people to be vaccine hesitant. Yeah, It's just this recurring theme, right? And it's kind of a running joke at this point on the show, but it keeps ringing true that maybe the answer to everything is just to nuke the internet from orbit. But you describe, you describe in your book and elsewhere, and I'm realizing as I continue talking with you that this is just going to be me quoting yourself to you, but I just want (laughs) to tease some of these ideas apart because I think they're really worthwhile, that the problem is ambient loneliness, right? That people feel so disconnected and alone with their thoughts that they quote, congeal into these online tribes, end quote. And earlier this week, as if from a message from heaven, I saw a study that showed that Americans have half as many close friends as they did in 1990. Hmm. That's only three decades ago, right? You were just about to move to New York at the time. So I just wonder, it feels like this problem can only be solved with more real-world friends, more real-world connections, more in-person intimacy. Yeah. That perhaps that's the salve, but I'm actually not sure how we can ever get there because the internet keeps drawing us inward.
1: Wow, that's so interesting. So they don't have friends. But at the same time, people have friends that they've never met, that they only know online, that they consider their real friends. So what happens is, again, it's this process that I just described, like your ideas, your interactions, the things that you talk about in the world and that you process get processed digitally and in front of an audience, even if you are seeing it as just an interaction with your friend. It's a very different Kind of mechanism than meeting a couple of friends for a beer after work and like kvetching about your day and your life. Yes. So, yeah. And again, like I'm glad that these things are resonating with you because I sometimes worry that, again, it just feels banal. It's like, well, it's because everybody's lonely or no. we're not connected. These things become platitudes and it's hard to know what they mean. But I do think that. A lot of the mobbing that happens on social media and the kind of just reflexive, I hate to use this term, but there hasn't been another one, a better one event yet, but the kind of reflexive virtue signaling that you see and people piling on others, even though they don't really even know what their crime was, or they don't even possibly see it deep down as a crime, that has to do with this real need to belong. I just think that people need to signal their allegiance, desperately so. And that desperation comes out of baseline disconnectedness in real life. But I don't know what to do about that. I see young people, and again, this sounds like such a cliche, but these kids are so overscheduled. They don't have time for social life. I'm sure when Lenore has talked about this, I mean, they don't have time to just be on the playground when they're little kids and when they're teenagers. They don't have time to just, like, go to the mall and, like run around and just be teenagers. Everything is being conducted in this virtual space in a public way. And it's not even really their fault. It's certainly not their fault. They just, for various reasons, in order to get into college, you've got to just do a whole bunch of things that you didn't have to do, when, certainly when I was trying to get into college. There's no time for that sort of life. And even as an adult now, I certainly spend way more time online than I should and less time with my friends in real life, even before the pandemic. That's a combination of laziness and the fact that people, as adults, were overscheduled as well. So, I don't know. I mean, again, it's like the internet is the best, worst thing that ever happened, you know?
0: And the pandemic, in some ways, did accelerate in the same way that it accelerated the success of places like Amazon and delivery services, because we needed them, it kind of accelerated that same ambient loneliness. And I want to try and pull some of the points you've made on this show with some of the points that you've made in your own podcast and book in because I think that if pulled together, they kind of create a larger whole. In an episode of your podcast called I Don't Know What to Think Anymore, which you recorded after the election, you said, quote, part of the reason social media is so addictive is its magical ability to make ambient perception almost indistinguishable from empirical reality. Spend a few hours on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, and you'll see how they take personal anecdote and offer up a kind of crowdsourced validation that elevates anecdote into something we're supposed to see as universal truth, end quote. And I want to just pull that back to something that you just said, which is people are making friends online, right, instead of in the real world. But they're making friends in a fundamentally different way than how they would make them in real life. And I think that that is an accelerant. So when you grew up in the 70s and 80s, and when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, you make friends for reasons that do involve similarities, right? Like I was kind of picked on as a kid in middle school. And so you kind of sit at the lunch table where all the other picked on kids are sitting. And so you develop a friendship there or like maybe, oh, you like board games. I like board games too. So it's not a new thing, right? But the problem with something like what's happening online is let's say you have like a really bad experience with a guy or a girl, or there's some kind of interaction that involves race or any one of the friction points that happen in society. And then you go online, you're angry, you're in pain, you feel something that you need to express, right? So it's Tumblr or Twitter or Facebook, and you express it. Then all of a sudden, there are other people because they can find you from anywhere in the world, right? Those other people who have experienced that same interaction Even if they are a minority percentage of the population that have experienced that potentially horrific thing, because they can find you through that way, and because then you can become friends because of that topic, you then all become friends, but you become friends and you bond around that shared potentially traumatic experience. So then that becomes the echo chamber in which everything that you experience day to day in that group is all reasserting that feeling that that thing is everywhere. Whereas if you were making friends in real life, in person, yes, there's a chance that maybe one out of 10 of your friends had also had a bad sexual encounter with a guy, but there are going to be other people in your friend group who can offer an alternate perspective that would counter your narrative from continuing. And that's one of the things that I worry is like causing this feedback loop is people are forming affinity groups potentially exclusively around trauma, which then creates the perception that it's everywhere.
1: That is extremely well articulated. Yeah. They're forming affinity groups. They are forming communities.
0: Which are good, but yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Right. See, this is the problem because what you just described is largely negative, but you could also, there's a version of what you just described, which is on balance positive. Before you could go online, a lot of people grew up Really, really isolated, yes. miserable, feeling alone, feeling like freaks, feeling like life was never going to get better. A lot of people just had a lot of pain growing up in ways that they maybe don't now. There's other forms of pain. Yes. So it's like, I don't know. It's one of these things. You know, I have to just keep coming back to the idea that the internet, social media, whatever, all of these different tentacles of digital media. Maybe it's not in its infancy anymore, but it's in its toddlerhood, which is worse than infancy. It's harder to manage. It's all over the place. It's tantruming. It demands our full attention with not a lot of reward. We're just in a really difficult moment with this. So I have to think that it's going to have to settle in. It's gonna to have to make peace with itself. You know, when the printing press was <laughs> was invented conspiracy theories were everywhere. They ran amok, right? I mean, the Salem witch trials came out of that. So, you know, a lot of people make that comparison, but there's a reason that they make it. We forget that history is long. It takes a long time to sort ourselves out. So it's easy for people like me to kind of wring our hands about how terrible things have gotten in the last 10 years, but 10 years is nothing. (laughs) You know, that's just a, a blink of a, blink. It's a little micro blink.
0: Yes. And you make a very good point, which I think is worth repeating, that there is a lot of good that comes out of people who have been through pain or traumatic experience being able to find one another. I mean, famously, the It Gets Better campaign was centered around that very idea that being gay and being alone in that experience in an environment that might have been hostile to your very way of being, you would be able to get through it because other people who went through your experience can assure you that it will get better. And so that is a big positive to come out of that.
1: The It Gets Better campaign. It's funny because, and I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, it was started by Dan Savage and his husband, Terry. And it was a sort of public service campaign for gay kids saying, you know, it gets better. You will not always be living in this small town. You will not always be in a place where you're the only gay kid. Like you are going to have a happy life. It's possible. There's all sorts of things that happen when you grow up. But then that message expanded. And so it wasn't just about being gay. It was kind of like about just being unhappy or marginalized or different generally. If I'm recalling this correctly, I'm actually hoping to talk to Dan about this. And I don't know if that's good or bad because then suddenly the idea of it gets better, if you're going to kind of have that message be in the air, it doesn't It just sort of assume that like by default, things are terrible now. like, if it gets better, it's it's not even necessarily directed at gay kids, it's directed at kids who just like, feel like they're a little weird or don't have as many friends as they'd like, or the guy that they like doesn't like them back. I mean, maybe I'm misinterpreting this and not seeing this accurately. But I kind of feel like it's one of those examples of a concept being stretched out into a kind of potential meaninglessness. And I'm not saying that the It Gets Better campaign is meaningless, but I feel like it's been diluted a little bit.
0: I totally get what you're saying. And I think you're touching on another dividing line between how someone might interpret, let's say, your work or the work of someone else who's... And you know, I'm wanting for descriptors here, right? Heterodox or whatever you want to call it, right? I
1: know. Yeah. There's no good I'm wanting.
0: But I think that one of the dividing lines, and it saddens me, right? Is... Someone might read your work, and their instant reaction is going to be like, "Oh, Megan's complaining about this because she doesn't care about the fact that someone feels marginalized or she doesn't care. She just wants them to toughen up and just deal with it and blah blah, blah blah, blah blah, blah blah." And I read your work, and maybe it's because I've struggled with depression and had to go through therapy, or, I, I don't know what it is about my worldview, that when I read your work, what I read into it is not that at all. What I read is an empathetic worry. That if someone continues to see themselves as a victim, it will actually cause them a great deal of pain over the course of their life. That your perspective is driven by empathy, not from some like, I just wish kids would get tougher, but that you understand that that kind of worldview can cause self-inflicted pain over time.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy, is it not? That's I, what I did. Yeah. Greg Lukianoff talks about this yes. a lot, right? You know, he, with Jonathan Haidt, wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, and they were involved in the heterodox. the heterodox Academy, speaking of Heterodox, yeah, and he talked about going through depression and, and being treated for it, and just the discipline that is required to look at the world in such a way that you can get past your depressed feelings and your sense of despair and your fixation on your own limitations, that requires seeing the big picture. And actually, if somebody tells you that you've really got to like train your mind to think about certain things and not about other things, that person is trying to help you. That is a gesture of empathy. But I guess there's still like a school of thought or some kind of group of people that's going to just see that as like Well, you're not having empathy. You know, empathy is another word that's been weaponized and diluted. I have noticed some of my critics would accuse me of having turned away from empathy, that kind of thing. And I'm just like, what does that even mean? I don't... First of all, like if you thought I was I had so much empathy before, maybe you should go back and reread my work because the problem with everything was the most sort of careful doubling back on itself, really, really kind of almost kid gloves in places of any of my books. I think that's like so remarkable. It really says something about the moment that we're in because my early work, which a lot of these millennials and people who've currently decided that I'm non grata, you know, those people loved a lot of my early stuff. By today's standards, uh, that stuff would be cancelable. So I'm not sure I'm inviting them to go back and reread it, but it's too late now. So (laughs) be my guest.
0: Well, you know, I think that... One, I think you're going to love the last question of the show that I ask every guest with those thoughts on empathy. And two, I think it's just a fundamentally different understanding of the word. And one, you go to great pains in the book to repeatedly assert that you have empathy for people who <laughs> yes, have gone sure, through these things. To be sure, to yeah, be sure, to be sure, to
1: be sure I have yeah, empathy. There's, yes. there's
0: quite a few to be sure senses there, right? <laughs> yes. And you, you recount your mother's own experiences and the sexism that she faced and how there are certain areas where it's not okay to just sit there and let something bad happen to you. That's not your perspective at all. But you do go on to say later in the book, and I think this is kind of a theme as well, that we are kind of watering down the meaning of words and expanding them to the point where they are kind of these formless things that can mean whatever someone wants them to be. And that worries me, right? Maybe as an English major, that worries me. But I think where you and I and Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt and and a lot of others would say is that before cognitive behavioral therapy, it sounds like a mouthful now, when I was at my worst moments of depression, right? The smallest thing, you know, like a argument with a friend, like when my brain wasn't working, right? It could send me into a week where it was very difficult to just get out of bed because I would be so consumed with this idea that my friendship was breaking apart or that maybe my boss at the place I was freelancing at secretly hated me. Like I was thinking very deeply unhealthy thoughts. I was not In my right mind, and cognitive behavioral therapy really helped me. And I wish empathetically that I could go back in time and tell myself to reassure myself don't waste away in your bedroom. Don't let this one incident, even if it was bad, right? Even if it wasn't a figment of my imagination, don't let it take you down for that long because these are days that you're not going to get back. This is a frame of mind that you're never going to be able to get back because it's taking days, weeks, even years away from you. And that is empathetic. That idea of, I don't want you to be so affected by this thing that happened to you, even if I agree with you that it was bad, that it takes away the precious days of your life that you will never recover. And I wish that people could understand that for so many people, that's what empathy means. It's not disregarding the trauma of the potential event, it's just not letting it rule your entire life.
1: Yeah. And I think to your point, one of the most liberating sentences that I can think of is nobody's really thinking about you that much, right? Like they're not thinking about you. (laughs) And I've said that sometimes to students like, Oh no, like if I write this, you know, what are people going to say? And I don't know, I really want to say this, but I'm afraid to say it. Or like, you know, somebody's going to be mad at me. And a couple of times I would say, you know what, don't take this the wrong way, but don't flatter yourself. They're not thinking about you that much. Just go ahead and do it. Look at it that way. Why don't you just go ahead? Because they're not thinking about you. And sometimes they get so upset. And I understand why. But I find it so helpful to tell myself that because we all get into these states like, oh no, did I insult this person? Or like, why wasn't I invited to this thing or that thing? Or like, what is it? And it's like, well, no, they forgot. (laughs) Like, people are busy. And it's actually like an incredible gift to just remember that you're not on everybody's radar at least not to the extent that you're on your own radar, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's so true. And it was a recurring theme, right, of therapy that I was in. But to push back on that just a little bit, in terms of the age that we're living in now, what you said is 100% true. And yet, if you're on social media, yeah, I mean, how many examples do we have of a comedian or a politician or whoever writing a tweet in 2011 when it was an entirely different platform and people were making like kind of off-color jokes to like get retweets and likes. And then like nine years later, they've forgotten they tweeted it and it was like just a, in the past and now they're fired from SNL or now it's a whole week's news cycle in their burgeoning political campaign or they can no longer host the Academy Awards, right? Yeah. Like how do we balance that idea that I think is rooted in real truth and should be told to people like your students? Right. With the idea that in the age of social media and the cancelers who are roaming the countryside, right, looking for fresh meat might actually do that very thing.
1: Yeah. No, I'm really glad that you brought that up, because I will say that when I have said this kind of thing to students, they have rightly said, well, that's easy for you to say because your career is already established. People can get mad at you on Twitter and even try to cancel you, but you're not in our position where we're going to be canceled before we even get started. So I am cognizant of that. But to your point, I guess I would say I mean it absolutely infuriates me when I see people get strung up for tweets that they did 10 years ago. I mean, we're in 100% agreement about that. What I would submit to you is how about the gatekeepers at all these institutions, you know, the executives of the media companies, the executive producers of SNLs, the presidents of universities, the heads of all of these entities, maybe they need to think about the fact that people aren't really going to think about this on Twitter for longer than 10 minutes, unless they take the extra step of firing this person. You know, if you take a moment and you just let the thing burn itself out, the person doesn't necessarily need to be canceled. Like, I think we need to really, really think about this. Like, If you are going to be such a coward as an administrator of a university or an executive in human resources at some company or whatever it is, you know, you shouldn't be in a leadership position. Being a leader means not caring what a lot of people think and actually leading by your own wits and making your own decisions and applying the expertise that ostensibly allowed you to get into that position in the first place and actually lead. And so I think part of leading is thinking for yourself and not worrying about not thinking about what other people are thinking and realizing that they're going to move on to thinking about other things. So that's how I would frame your very valid point.
0: I think that's very well said. I think it really is an issue of companies and HR managers and people in charge, people in leadership positions, standing up and creating a culture where it is okay to say things. And if you need to be mildly reprimanded or just pulled aside and be like, hey, off color joke, I know you're a good person, but like, not cool, right? And then leave it at that. It's a culture that has to be created. I'm not sure how we get there. But I'm in total agreement that it's really a position of leadership.
1: Yeah, we can't blame the people on Twitter. We can't blame the kids. I mean, this was the thing when we started complaining kind of about this kind of Misapplied intersectional theory. I don't like to talk about wokeness because I just think that's kind of disparaging and also, again, meaningless. But when we started to see this kind of cultural shift and it was coming out of college campuses and it was students deplatforming speakers and complaining about all sorts of silly microaggressive nonsense, it was easy to say, well, these are just a bunch of kids and it doesn't matter. Kids have always. Been radical and silly. But the fact is that now they have come into positions in, they're out of college, right? And they're in, they're working for the New York Times and they're working for NPR and they're working for Google. But, you know, the fact is that there are still people in their 40s and 50s and 60s working at these places. And they really need to like act their age and take advantage of the fact that they know who they are and they are seasoned, supposedly gifted at what they do capable people and stand up to it and the fact is i think that the rewards will be rich it's kind of a small example but you know trader joes is one of the few companies that pushed back at this on a, there was some media coverage of this. I don't know if you followed this story, but Trader there Jose's was somebody, I think it might've even been like a high school yes. student. Yeah, right. I think it was like a high school student or maybe like some kind of young person. She started a petition on petition.org or something to complain about how Trader Joe's had the different ethnic food categories and they would call them like Trader Ming's was the Asian food and Trader Jose's or like the Mexican food. And, you know, it was just like a, part of the sort of whimsical sensibility of Trader Joe's, and she thought that this was culturally appropriative and also insulting or whatever, hateful, racist, whatever. And Trader Joe's handled it beautifully. They kind of like took a moment. There was like a little uproar on social media, and then they put out a statement that I just thought was perfectly worded, saying, we looked into this, we thought about what you said, we talked about it. And ultimately, we decided that our customers appreciate and understand the spirit in which these labels are intended, and this is part of our company, and we're going to continue on. And I'm sure that they were rewarded for it. People were delighted and appreciative of that response. And all it takes is like a few more of those. But if Trader Joe's can do it, why can't Harvard and Yale do it? That's what I don't understand. It's exasperating.
0: I want to say more on that, but I want to make sure that we have time to touch on a, a topic that is slightly adjacent to that. And it's a little more personal because it was something that I connected with in the book and in the essay, Nuance a Love Story, because it aligned pretty close with my own experience. So you talk about coming across free speech YouTube at the same time that your marriage was kind of falling apart. And you go on to say, quote, maybe my bloodlust for left on left warfare wasn't just a petty indulgence, but a substitute for the warfare of my marriage itself. My husband had been at once the best thing about my life and the worst thing, end quote. And obviously, I'm taking that out of a much larger context in the book. And a marriage is not like a relationship, but in the same exact way, because I wasn't married. But I was in this five-year relationship with a wonderful woman, but we had problems. She had introduced me to critical race theory in 2013, long before oh, no. anyone was really, was really familiar with it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah so getting it was,
1: somebody uh, hooked on drugs or something. I was, yeah.
0: Yeah, I was on the cutting edge before anyone really knew what that was. You know, I learned some valuable stuff and the ways in which like the legal system interacted with race. And so it wasn't all negative. But she kind of looked at the world in kind of this singular way that she applied to a lot of the interactions that she had with white people. She herself was and is Asian American, and also kind of in our relationship in ways that began to kind of make me feel sort of crazy, right? Because I started kind of questioning my own reality. And because I was sort of susceptible to depression already, I kind of fell into this deeply depressive mode because I wasn't sure, okay, maybe she's right. Like maybe yeah. I am kind of inherently bad, or maybe I should feel bad about the fact that I grew up in a majority white town or all these other things. Right. And I started reading more and more of this theory and these essays, and it kind of just put me on the spiral. Right. And it was around 2016 when I first came across some of the free speech, YouTube folks, blogging heads and, and others. And For the first time, I really kind of started feeling sane again, Yeah. only because you said it was like you found new friends in some ways. And I felt sort of the same way. I was like, oh, my God, like there are people out here who not only know what I'm talking about, because when I would talk with my normal friends in real life, right, they wouldn't have no idea what critical race theory even was. Some of the concepts I was talking to them about just confuse them. And they're like, can we just play board games or like have a beer or something? (laughs) And it was so refreshing to come across people who were articulating subjects that I knew about, but no one else seemed to, in ways that made me feel not bonkers. Right. And the same thing that drew me, and I'm bringing this back around to you, the same thing that drew me to Free Speech YouTube was eventually what kind of caused me to Launched the podcast, not only to talk with other like-minded people, but to try and get something productive out of what I can sometimes feel if I'm in a dark place, a black hole of half a decade. How do I make sense of what happened to me in a way that's productive? But now that I've gotten the podcast going and I've kind of dealt with a lot of that stuff, I'm reassessing what the podcast is for because the meaning that it was serving when I first launched it is not exactly the same thing that is perpetuating it now. This is all a very long-winded way of saying, Megan. How has your relationship to the heterodox thinkers and the free speech YouTube and your own podcast and writing changed, if at all, as you've gotten more temporal distance from your own marriage?
1: Oh, well, I mean, I guess I would say that the dynamic in my marriage was kind of the reverse of yours. So my husband was my intellectual ally. So the thing that I wrote about in that piece... And it's funny because that piece was actually, I was writing The Problem With Everything, and that was part of it. And I kind of rushed to pull out an excerpt and publish it before the book was finished because people were suddenly starting to talk about the intellectual dark web. Barry Weiss had written a piece in the New York Times, although I have to say, I adore Barry. And I wrote a piece for the LA Times about the intellectual dark web a couple months before her piece came out. So I was like totally obsessed with this group, but I hated the term intellectual dark web. So that's why I coined free speech YouTube. But yeah, so my husband and I, we were doing the equivalent in our conversations I was getting out of my conversations with my husband what I then got out of watching people on blogging heads. And so when I lost my marriage, I had lost my conversational partner. And because of my friends and peers and colleagues were all of a sudden like not on the same page, they were suddenly becoming kind of like captured by this identitarian outlook. That's when I got so sucked in to watching people talk to one another on YouTube so it's more that I am getting farther away from writing opinions and writing this kind of journalism. I cannot do it anymore. I was in a situation of burnout really unlike any other. I mean, I have been on a deadline a weekly or biweekly deadline for the last 10 or 12 or more years, actually probably more. And so the mandate to kind of cough out some kind of opinion or take On a set schedule, it makes you start to say things that not that you don't really mean necessarily, but that you just don't really need to say. And so I was just really, really tired of talking myself, uh, at least in that way. And I wanted other people to talk. So, I started the podcast because I wanted to engage with certain subjects, but I didn't necessarily want to be the one having to like have an opinion about it. I want to talk to somebody like Lenore Scanese, for instance, who we've, you know, she's been on your show about. Her ideas about safetyism and about what's happened with the culture of parenting and perception of child abductions versus reality. I want her to talk about that rather than me having to like kind of skim off the top and say something kind of superficial and then make some kind of declaration in an opinion piece. So that's been really liberating. So yeah, it doesn't have so much to do with with my marriage. I mean, I still talk to my ex-husband all the time and <laughs> we, so we still talk about this stuff all the time. So I was lucky that way. But I want to write less and listen more, I guess. At least write less of the kind of thing that I had been writing.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. I can understand if all of a sudden it goes from a point where you're saying things that you want to get off your chest to now all of a sudden you are rushing to fill a blank page because you have to. I imagine that's a very uncomfortable place to be as a writer.
1: It's horrible. It's also horrible to be married to that kind of person (laughs) or in a relationship with that kind of person because it's like everything is material. And then plus you can't, you know, you're constantly worried about your deadline. And so you you never know. It's like, is she going to this movie this weekend with me because she really wants to or because she thinks she's going to get a column out of this movie? And often it was the latter. So yeah, it's no way to live.
0: Since I started this podcast... I went from listening to about, I would say, 10 other podcasts a week to I think I listened to maybe like half of another podcast a week now. Wow. And it took me a while to figure out like why I'm just not listening to that many podcasts anymore, right? Like, Or why I'm not watching as much free speech YouTube as I once was. And it seems like once I started actually just talking to other people who were like minded, I realized that, oh, that's what I needed to fill that hole. Like to feel less alone. And now I'm not watching and consuming like hour after hour after hour for validation. Again, to be sure, recognizing that our histories are different. Have you found that your own relationship, let's say to free speech YouTube or to even your own friends in real life, where you were in 2016 when you first experienced this, has that changed at all as you've now been hosting the Unspeakable podcast for quite some time?
1: Gosh, I wish I could say yes. Uh, No, I still (laughs) listen to a lot of podcasts. I love them. I feel like my usual rotation of podcasts, I feel like it's an important part of my life. Fair enough. Yeah, my own podcast. You know, the thing though is it's tricky because. I mean, I'm sure you've encountered this. It's like, this is not really what you're asking. But I, I also listen to the podcast because often we end up having the same guests. I mean, that's the thing. Is like the pro- <laughs> the know. problem is like there's a kind of a handful of us sort of probing certain kind of issues in a certain kind of way. And then yeah. tend to, there are like certain guests if they have a book out or whatever. And, you know, it's becomes the obvious person to invite on the show. So it's really hard to kind of split the difference between having a guest that, you know, listeners are going to want to hear from and, you know, you're going to get a lot of downloads and having a guest that's more surprising or, you know, is completely unknown or is just saying something different. So I sometimes listen because I want to see like, like Andrew Sullivan and I, I feel like we're always sort of nipping at each other's heels. Like, you know, he's going to talk <laughs> about it and I'm like, oh shit, I just, I, I just recorded an interview about the same thing with somebody slightly different, you know? So yeah, I, I'm just kind of curious what they're up to. So yeah, it's kind of that. I don't know. But it's been hard, the pandemic, like we haven't gotten out. So I will be curious to see if, as things start to open up and I start to actually like see people in real life and go out for drinks and, and talk about things, if the podcast urgency abates somewhat.
0: That's good. Are you still appropriating Appalachian pain or have you moved back? <laughs> Are you still over there? Well, oh, you
1: did a deep a deep dive. No, no, <laughs> I'm I'm in I'm in New York City. That's good. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. See, and that's an example. Yeah, <laughs> your listeners don't know this. So, I, I published a piece last summer. I had this column for Medium, and I actually. They had a stable of columnists. They were actually paying us. We were on a contract. We had editors. It wasn't just like we were posting things on Medium. So I was obliged to file a piece twice (laughs) a month. That's a crazy (laughs) story. I was down. I had fled the city in April because of the pandemic. And it was a whole thing. I had a puppy. Like, I didn't want to write about it at all because I knew I would get in trouble. But then I didn't have anything to write about. And I had a deadline. And my editor was like, oh, write about how you left the city. And so I did. And, of course, they slapped this horrible headline on it like, I fled New York for greener pastures and a puppy. I was down in the Blue Ridge Mountains in the southwest corner of Virginia near North Carolina border. And I didn't want to be specific about where I was. So I kept referring to my location as Appalachia, just thinking it would be generic. And what I didn't realize is Appalachia is a marginalized group. And there's like Appalachia Twitter and they really see themselves as a marginalized class. So if anybody says anything about them... It's, it's like hate speech. Anyway, it just like escalated into this really one of the worst Twitter draggings of my life. And I was accused of being a literal murderer because I had come down, uh, my plague rat self had come down from New York and hid in a farmhouse for a while. But to answer your question, I ended up staying there for six months and I don't think I murdered anybody and it was quite wonderful and I, I started the podcast down there. But no, I've been back since last fall. I've been back in New
0: York City. What you just said about being a literal murderer in the Appalachian Mountains, it goes back to something you, you said in the book, and I don't have the passage directly in front of me. It was really eloquent, but I mentioned it earlier. You were talking kind of about how words are just kind of losing their form and how frustrating that was for you as a writer. And I don't really have a larger question, but I would love to just kind of hear you speak on that because I do think it is a real concern, right? And not just because... It's creating this arms race where not even just when it comes to politics, but like you have titles where it's like this puppy riding a school bus is literally everything (laughs) or, you know, like (laughs) this makeup tutorial is all we need right now, you know, like stuff like that. And not to mention the fact that, you know, white supremacy can mean everything from a glass of milk to literally murdering people or oppression can be Rohingya Muslims and also someone mispronouncing your name in the office. I'm asking this just to you as a writer. How do you navigate that? And is there a way back from this, where words can go back to meaning actual real things and retain the power that is necessary for writing to actually hit?
1: Yeah, I don't know. So much of it, yeah. The uh, the literal well, literal means virtual. I mean, that's been going on for a long time. I mean, there was an SNL sketch. I mean, I want to say even in the early aughts where they were making fun of the word literal. They were saying it. This is literally, this parking lot is literally as busy as, and then it was some extremely obscene joke about, (laughs) this is back when you could slut shame and make fun of the, overuse of the word literal yeah so that's been going on for a long time i mean yeah this sort of twitter vernacular like the so much this right or they'll respond to some article like i feel seen or like the whole yes queen thing it feels it's so teenage girl isn't it it's so just sounds like mean girls are like just it's very adolescent
0: yes i agree that is such a badass thing for you to say
1: Oh the bad! Oh the badass thing kills me, right? The bad and the thing is that's so outdated now.
0: I know. Well, not although not quite. you
1: sent me, oh my gosh, yes, you sent me that amazing cover in Style magazine, right? Which is a yes. offshoot of Time magazine. So this is how out of style they are. It was the Secretary of the Interior, right? Mm, yes. The new Secretary of the Interior, she's an Indigenous person. I can't remember her name. I should know this.
0: Deb Howland, I think. If I'm pronouncing okay. her name, her okay. name correctly.
1: And she's a badass. But that's so weird on so many levels because it's like really dated right now. Like the whole badass trope, I feel like, is very 2016 or something. But I hate all that stuff. As everybody knows, the girl boss, the badass boss bitch stuff. There's a wonderful novel by Lee Stein that came out last year called Self Care that sends this stuff up brilliantly the whole girl boss corporate culture. So, yeah, I don't know. What, what are you going to do with words? I don't know. But the thing is, as John McWhorter points out, they're always evolving. We can't really be such sticklers about them. Language shifts constantly. So I want to be careful about getting on my high horse too much about it. So, yeah, I have a very unsatisfying answer to that question. As a writer, I don't like it. But you know what? I try to just live by my own rules. Like, I try to be precise. And if other people aren't going to be precise... That's not my problem. Yeah. At the end of the day, what's their problem?
0: I mean, I think that's a good point. And I think it is very in theme with the problem with everything. And I think with your life, the things that are out of our control or the things that happen to us, whether it's language changing or otherwise, aren't the things that necessarily have to define us. But I think that there is a point, I can't remember which chapter it's in, where you talk about feeling kind of, and I'm trying to paraphrase because I don't have the quote pulled, but... almost feeling like even when it comes to the free speech YouTubers, right? And this might have been actually a quote from the podcast, where you were talking about about how even when you check in with them, you don't even know half of what they're talking about anymore, because (laughs) the topics are always changing, and the words are changing, and the lingo is always updating. And I don't know if you're anything like me in this regard, but it can feel a combination of like exhausting and almost Traumatic is the wrong word. That's yeah, exhausting too
1: and traumatic. Those are two of their favorite words. Yeah. The social justice people, everything is exhausting.
0: I'll try and relate it this way because I think that we are close enough in age that I think you can relate to this. There's a whole array of stores that existed when I was a child and, and you were younger as well um, that no longer exist. Circuit City is the most recent one. I think there was, oh my gosh, there's one that I can't even remember anymore where my parents would take me all the time. It was like a chain. It wasn't a Sears, but it was like, Something like it, where you could get house appliances and other things, and Hmm. it was in my town. And we would go all the time. It was in that. I'm I'm blanking. It like went out of business in like the early 2000s. But there's a whole host of stores that existed before the internet, before Amazon, that were like behemoths of commerce. Right, Blockbuster would be one as well. And the age of the internet just kind of destroyed them all. They just got replaced because they didn't keep up. And so they're totems in many ways of where you were and who you were as a child that now no longer exist to remind you of past eras of your own life. Mm. And so they've they've kind of been erased. So I think you might be able to see where I'm going here. Similarly with words, whether it's the word feminism or gender or sex or racism or any of these other things, it can feel exhausting in a sometimes exhilarating, but sometimes terrifying way. Because you're saying, well, wait a second, just five years ago, I knew what that word meant. And I knew that when we were talking about this subject, I knew we were on the same page in the same way that for years and years and years, I would go to this block and there'd be a blockbuster here and I could go in and I could rent this DVD or this VHS and it would just be there. And now it's gone and replaced by a Foot Locker or a T-Mobile or whatever, right? Yeah. And so like over time during those periods, when buildings would come down and be replaced by something new, it's a little bit sad because things happen, but it would happen over years and decades. But now it feels like there's a linguistic and social version of that happening. But every six months Mm -hmm. where all of a sudden a topic that you knew about is like the blockbuster that is no longer there. Am I making sense? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah i guess i feel like i've given up on that long ago I, we're not <laughs> that enough. far apart in age but i think i might be enough older than you that i can't i don't know like i don't even know who <laughs> like any celebrities are i mean the thing is too like i don't have kids so when you don't have kids you really don't have any concept of pop culture as it shifts it's pretty bad i mean i i'm I'm a relatively curious person, but I'm only curious in like certain directions. There's entire swaths of the culture that I have no knowledge of or interest in. And I'm not really proud of that, but I just, (laughs) I can't, I can't, I really like to just, I try to limit my exposure. I'm a really late adopter of like everything, of technology. I come to everything late. So I've just, I long ago accepted that about myself.
0: Oh, sure. But on the topics that you are interested in and the topics that free speech YouTube talks about or the guests that you have on your show. right?
1: Well, yes, that stuff I doubled down on. Yeah, that's true.
0: And a lot of the things that you grapple with on that show are the very kind of topics that are kind of in flux, right? I mean, if you look at the distances between the different waves of feminism, right, you had the first wave of feminism, which was like the late 1890s. And then it took 70 years for the second wave to come around. And obviously, like, things were happening in that period, like women weren't in stasis and like, frozen lockers or something. They were doing stuff. But if we're just talking about the waves, yeah, there was a 70 year period between wave one and two. And then it was mid 1960s to the mid 1990s between wave two and three. And then it was about 18 years between wave three and four. And now wave four seems to be eating itself yeah. eight years later. And so that's kind of more what I'm sort of talking about. And maybe my metaphor to the blockbuster wasn't an articulate one. But I, I think it's just more of the idea that the speed of, in which things are changing makes it difficult to have kind of coherent conversations with people.
1: Right. Well, I think for a lot of people, the world seems terrible to them. I mean, if all you know is a world where constantly on the news there are reports of unarmed black men being shot by police, of hate crimes, every single thing that happens gets recorded on social media in some way. If you're living in a world where the bad stuff is coming at you constantly with no sense of perspective, you are going to think that you've never been living in a worse time. I mean, the amount of young people I hear saying it's never been a worse time for X. It's never been a worse time for women. It's never been a worse time for people of color. Well, that is just patently untrue. (laughs) Would you rather live in 2019 or 1919? I know the clothes were cool in 1919 and like, I would love to have some flapper dresses and go to speakeasies and such. But you know, for most people, there's no question. People died of horrible illnesses. There were gross injustices. People had no rights. You know, I sometimes have to remind people too. It's like, it wasn't that long ago where if you were a man, there's pretty good chance you were going to die in war on the battlefield. And if you're a woman, there's a pretty good chance you were going to die in childbirth life just sucked for everybody. And we kind of tend to forget that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that was an amazing point because I don't know if you've seen the documentary They Shall Not Grow Old by Peter Jackson.
1: No. Wow, how did I miss that?
0: I think you'd quite enjoy it. I don't know what streaming service it's available on now, but when it first came out, it was restored World War I footage that had been not only restored from the kind of crank shift motor that would make the frame rate variable from like 12 frames to 20 frames, that was all restored with computer algorithms. The images were also touched up. They were colorized, and they were made 3D. And even more than that, you had instances where they would do sound recording, obviously, because the film from 1917 didn't have sound. So they would go back to the sites of the battlefield. They would take all the original weaponry and even the boots that the men were wearing, and they would go into the areas where they were walking around. They would have people who would speak the local British dialects. It was about British army men who served in World War I. And uh, have them lip sync to the men that were on the film in the wow. appropriate accents. They would track down. So, like, oh, this guy's from Liverpool, <laughs> we'll have a lip reader read his lips and record with his Liverpoolian accent, right?
1: My God, it's the ultimate LARPing.
0: Yeah, it's an incredibly moving documentary and it's very tragic and horrific. Minor spoiler the reason that the documentary is called They Shall Not Grow Old is because a large portion of the men who went to serve in World War I were 16 and 17 years old, and most of them died Yeah, and did not come back, right? So they shall not grow old. It's just really to echo your point that, I mean, history is full of horrors and that doesn't negate the fact that we still have progress to do. But you know what it kind of reminds me of? You had a visiting professorship at the University of Iowa some years back. You talk about this on the Delve podcast. You taught, among other things, a, a cultural criticism class, where you were kind of teaching works of moral complexity, stories without clearly drawn lines of, of good and <laughs> I was evil. teaching
1: stuff that I liked. So that was yeah. my first mistake.
0: <laughs> one thing that struck me is that you, you were finding it difficult, almost impossible at times, to have discussions about these works with your graduate students. And one example you used on that Delve podcast is a story of a woman who was sorting through her experience of sexual assault. And the graduate students were opposed to discussing the complexities of the author's thoughts because anything short of a clear and bad binary was, quote, internalized misogyny on the part of the woman, right? Mm -hmm. The students were reticent to engage with points of view that made them wrestle with their own assumptions. But this view, right, of internalized misogyny, quote, unquote, is its own assumption that at some point, all the students embraced as the truth. And it replaced whatever these students had previously believed. So, I guess my question, and we can start to wind down here, but what is it about certain viewpoints on the left, similar to kind of like the religious right in some ways, that are particularly resistant to challenge, right? Like, how has this happened that you can't just offer another alternative? Well, maybe it was internalized misogyny, or maybe it was something else. Yeah. What is happening among graduate students and other people on the left?
1: I can only think it's because they're shaky in their foundation. They're not quite sure themselves. So, you know, you can always tell when someone doesn't quite trust themselves when they're resistant to any kind of, I don't even want to say debate, if they're resistant to any kind of even questioning, then it becomes very threatening. So I think probably on some level, it feels good to them to assume that this is the truth, that any kind of gray area when you're parsing a complicated sexual situation If you're going to indulge any complexity there, it's coming from a place of internalized misogyny, patriarchy, you know, go down the list. I guess like, again, it comes back to this feeling of community. It's like if I subscribe to this belief system, then I'm part of a community of like-minded others. And that makes me feel less lonely and it just makes it easier to navigate the world. I mean, I think the religion comparison the comparison between religious doctrine and this new wokeness, or kind of as I like, you know, misapplied social justice sensibility. That comparison is made a lot. I think some people make it in a pretty compelling way. Other people just kind of like toss it around and don't really get into it. It just feels like it's a simple way to go through your life. I mean, there's a reason that people have been religious, that human beings have been tribal and religious throughout human civilization, because it's just a way to organize your life that makes sense when life in and of itself usually doesn't. So I guess it just feels good for people to make those assumptions. But, you know, I always find myself that, you know, I tend to get the most defensive when somebody challenges me on something that I'm not quite sure of myself, that I've been kind of telling myself is the narrative, trying to talk myself into something that's when I start to get my back up. So I think that that's a lot of what goes on. And there's an entire realm of discussion that we haven't touched on that where I think that phenomenon is hugely in play. But maybe that's conversation for another time.
0: Well, I will ask one follow-up question on that point, because I think it is relevant and instructive. Because based on your work and your conversations, You don't necessarily strike me as someone who is afraid to have their views challenged, although I do understand that the concept you're talking about is 100% real, that we can attach the ideas that we hold in our own minds to our own personhood, right? And so then if an idea that we have is challenged, it feels like our entire existence is being challenged. And that seems to be kind of the prevailing theme of a lot of discourse today. You challenging my idea is violence against me. My question to you, Megan, would be, in what ways have you kind of practiced yourself, to be able to disconnect ideas or precepts that you hold from who you are so that you're more open to listening and hearing other ideas? How have you kind of encouraged that in your own mind?
1: Oh, man. I mean, it's hard. I don't think I'm necessarily very good at it. I mean, yeah, like if someone was going to say, wow, you're so obsessed. You're so obsessed with looking at hypocrisy. Why are you so obsessed with it? and i start to think like well i don't know maybe i'm a hypocrite like you know <laughs> i'm i'm very much a believer in the you spot it you got it syndrome <laughs> you know yeah it's always the thing the thing that bothers you and other people is the thing that you hate about yourself so i don't know it's really hard i don't have a satisfying answer to that question because i know that a lot of the i mean i've talked about this elsewhere like you know a lot of my allergy to this kind of performative Expression of politicized outrage. It's because I, you know, this whole other discussion, you know, I had a mother who had performative tendencies, and there was sometimes a lack of authenticity in our family structure. Just that's a whole other thing. But I will cop to the fact that there are probably emotional and psychological components to my reactions to the culture that I have filtered into some kind of intellectual pursuit. But I think a lot of us do that.
0: (laughs) I think we all do. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that is a incredibly instructive answer. I mean, I think that the things that oftentimes we are most sensitive about, I mean, I can't say it better than how you just said it. The things that we are most sensitive about oftentimes point to things that we sometimes don't like about ourselves or things that remind us of parts of our past that we dislike. That's very well said. I certainly know that it drives me.
1: A lot of it is cringing at my former self. I'll think of back to when I was in college or something. And I, I have this kind of highlight reel of my most stupidest things I ever said. It's, ter- it's terrible. Like, I kind of think like, oh God, I remember when I was in college and I just set, made some off the cuff remark, just kind of knee jerk lefty thing that was completely uninformed and you know, kind of rolling my eyes snidely at somebody who had more conservative beliefs who was like probably an economics major and knew what they were talking about. You know, that kind of thing. So, I feel like I'm kind of doing penance for those sorts of <laughs> moments. And I even had those moments as a columnist. There are certainly columns that I wrote during my time at the LA Times that I just kind of took the easy insight or the easy statistic that is pretty misleading that wasn't really because it was serving my argument. So, I kind of just mm. shoehorned it. I kind of just threw it in there. And that's what all columnists do. And that's why I don't really want to do it anymore. But I cringe. I cringe a lot. And so, I think that kind of this, mode that a lot of us are in right now, at least for my part. I think a lot of this mode is being fueled by trying to kind of, isn't it awful? Maybe like cleanse myself from my past hypocrisies or (laughs) laziness, cheating, just kind of intellectual laziness I had in spasms in my earlier years. I don't know.
0: Well, two things there. One, I think who among us, Megan, has not been lured by the siren song of the silver haired and silver braceleted right now more than ever. We are all guilty, whether it's uh, in a column or otherwise, or in a group of friends, right? You see this in stand-up comedy all the time. Hell, President Trump was really good at this. He would say a word, right? And then the audience would start cheering. And then he would just keep saying it over and over again. That's where you'd get all these people chanting, build the wall, because he would say it one time. Everyone would start cheering. And then... I mean, you know, there were a lot of silver hairs in those audiences. But I think the other thing, too, and I feel this way about listening even to past episodes which aren't that long ago. It's like, uh, I would have asked a better question there. But I think some of that uncomfortableness that we all have is like, if you're not uncomfortable with stuff you did in the past, you're not really growing, right?
1: Right. Yeah. And I also say that if you're not conflicted, you're not being honest. Mm. So like, you're not, If you're not conflicted, you're either lying or you're not very smart.
0: <laughs> I love that line.
1: I also think it comes back to this idea they're not really thinking about you. I mean, it's really hard. The thing I'm sure you'll find that if you do the podcast once a week or whatever, it's liberating because you realize that you're not going to hit it out of the park every time. That was the Mm. best part of being a newspaper columnist for me, was that I had to do it every week. I had 730 words. I had to hit, you know, it had to fit into the space. And so you realize that it's not going to be great every time. And that's incredibly freeing because, you know, I, before that I had been an essayist and I would write these really long, <laughs> just ruminative pieces and like, Oh, I hope it'll be in the New Yorker, you know, this kind of thing. And you get really precious about yourself. Mm. And so to have just to be forced to keep doing it and to know that it's not going to be great every time is a good thing. And it does, it comes back into this idea of like, you know, not everybody's thinking about you. I don't know if you sometimes get, how do you respond? Like when listeners write and say like, Oh, this episode wasn't very good or you didn't ask very good questions or I, I wish you had pushed back when the guest said this or that. And you know they're right. I always wonder like how to handle that because I'm often tempted to just be like, yeah, you know what? It was an off week. So, okay, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> like, is that just really unprofessional to respond to somebody that way? Because I, it's like, <sighs> what if, you know, yeah, it was like not the best day at the office. Okay, I don't like it, but it happens.
0: I'm not getting those types of comments yet. The kind of comments that I'm getting are either DMs on Twitter where someone will be like, I felt so alone. And then I heard your podcast. Yep. I get several of those. And then the only other kind I get are thankfully much more rare. And they're not as nuanced as what you just described, but it's usually just some kind of like, this is the kind of liberalism that makes me sick. Like, you guys are going to destroy society. And I'm like, are you no. listening to the same podcast no. that I'm trying to make? <laughs> so yeah. I'm not coming across any critique yet that is actually hitting. But I, I have come across it in the past, whether it's on like creative works that I've done in, in my field, in marketing or in film. And I don't know, it's tough. It's I think it's about and you understand this obviously as a writer, it's about parsing feedback, even if it's inarticulate, that is hitting at something real versus feedback that is unrelated. There's this one, and I'm just gonna I guess share it more for the listener, but there's this one story from back in film school when there was a screenwriting professor I had who was talking about how sometimes the most inarticulate feedback from someone who's not in film is sometimes the best. And he talked about this anecdote where someone was commenting on a script of his. And in the script, the protagonist had a dog. It was some executive or something was making the feedback. And the executive was like, well, I think you should make the dog a cat. (laughs) And the writer was like, why? And the executive was like, well, I grew up with a cat. And I just think that if you make it a cat, then it will connect more and the screenwriting professor was using this as an opportunity to talk about how even inarticulate feedback like that, that sounds stupid on its face, can actually be getting at something real. And his point was, it's not that you had to make the dog a cat. But what he is saying is, is that he's not getting the bond that you're trying to establish between the protagonist and the dog. And so he's trying to shortcut it by making it a cat. Mm. And he's speaking to the weakness of your writing, because you're not establishing the bond between these two characters. So he's like, that's how you can sometimes take feedback like that. Now, granted, sometimes it's also just complete garbage and you can throw it away, but it's about figuring out what's good and bad.
1: Yeah, that's a good example. I would never think to make a dog into a cat. (laughs) I'm I'm allergic to cats, but that would be a problem. But it's a good metaphor. I'll have to think about that. Or a good device. I don't know what you'd call that. Lesson. It's a good lesson.
0: I mean, I've got the film school debt to prove it. Good lessons are expensive, but... I've had a really fantastic time talking with you, Megan, and I don't want to um, drown you in praise, but I find your writing not just incredibly relevant, but so crisp and quick in that I just find the pages like melting away like ice cream on like a summer day. I'm usually a pretty slow reader. So, I recommend your work, whether it's The Problem With Anything or any one of your other five books to anyone or your essays, to anyone who's interested, if they've enjoyed this conversation or want someone who talks about these issues. So, I do want to ask the final question that I ask every guest, and it is relevant to what we've been talking about today. As individuals, we're limited in our time and our energy and often in our capacity for empathy. There's that word right there. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of every other person, every group of people all the time. It's just impossible. There's not enough hours in the day. We're busy with deadlines and other things. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to?
1: This building has collapsed in Miami, outside of Miami. I mean, this is like a horrible situation. I don't know when this is going to post, so maybe this will be old news by then. I find it like very strange that this is not a bigger news story. There are hundreds of people going to be dead from this. It's a really horrific thing that has happened in Florida with this condo building that has collapsed. There are at least 100 people missing. I would imagine that means they're buried in the rubble. And the story is like kind of getting peripheral coverage for some reason. So I guess like my answer at this moment today would be, I would offer empathy for anybody who is directly affected by that situation that feels maybe a little unseen for any number of reasons. It's like, it's a really, really massive catastrophe that we don't seem to be talking about for some reason. So
0: The cynical part of me, and I usually don't, I try to avoid adding commentary. I have no idea
1: what you're about to say, because it's certainly nothing I'm thinking. Okay, go ahead. I'll let you say it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, the cynical part of me thinks that it's not getting covered because there's no angle, whether it's a social justice angle or a political angle or anything like that, that is driving all of our news coverage these days. Everything is filtered through those lenses that you talk about in the book. That's why. And sometimes tragedy is just tragedy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I should probably not be saying this. I would just, as a thought experiment, if that building was filled with a different demographic, we would be having a very different conversation about it. I just think it's kind of a remarkable thing to see. And maybe the media coverage will change. And I'm not saying there's none, but it's a little unnerving, I have to say.
0: Yes. Yeah. I hope that we can get to a place where we can talk about as a society talk about tragedy and appreciate it just for it being tragic that we don't have to add layer upon layer of not that these things aren't important right not that intersectionality and the different ways that we interact with each other isn't important to be sure right (laughs) but sometimes i don't know i hope we can also get to a point that sometimes it's okay to just accept that a bad thing has happened and let it just be bad
1: shit happens yes as they stay
0: Well, Megan, thank you again for your podcast, for the writing that you do, and for the time that you took today. It really means a lot to me. And thank you so much for coming on.
1: Oh, thank you. This has been great. You're a great interviewer. It's a pleasure to engage with you, to answer your questions. So thanks for having me.
0: Thank you.